It's Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. This episode, I think you're going to really learn and hopefully feel what happens to someone when they reach the criminal justice system. And my guest is Jared Adams, who is an attorney, an attorney who went to prison first an attorney who went to prison first, who was innocent of the crime that he was charged with, but he had to work for his own liberty. So stay with us during this podcast because I assure you he will let you know a lot about what it's really like to be arrested, what's really like to be innocent, and how, how crazy difficult it is to be found innocent and move on with your life. So, Jarrett, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So let's start at the beginning. Um, tell us what happened with your arrest, and we'll go from there. What happened with me was was really what happens to a lot of underserved, you know, people in our communities. And I was 17 years old. I was falsely accused of a rape along with two other friends after we attended a party at a college campus. You know, what played a factor into this was race. Like, I can't misstate that. Our accuser was white. We were three black kids from Chicago. And so, you know, based off that alone, we didn't go in with the with the innocent before, you know, proven guilty at all. We were assumed guilty based and, off that. And the investigation was really not much of an investigation, was it? No, that wasn't an investigation. There, there was, as a matter of fact, uh, the, the investigation— uh, wasn't completely turned over to us. In this aspect, the police had a, a, a statement from a college student who basically undermined the entire allegations of the case, and they failed to turn that statement over to the defense. And as a result of and that— And that's part of—so that for our listeners, that, you know, when you are accused of a crime and arrested for a crime, there's something called discovery. Yes. It's the materials that you're supposed to be get, given so that um, the defense knows what the evidence, alleged evidence is, and that your lawyer can prepare. Exactly. So you're saying they didn't even include in the original discovery that by law they need to give your lawyer— it was missing things. It was. And then, and then to, to reach the viewers who are, you know, probably a part of the everyday law and the language and stuff like that, uh, if someone accuses you of striking them, right, and uh, you have that on a complaint, but there are different witnesses around who may have seen, you know, it would actually happen, and it didn't happen the way the complaining witness said it happened, if the statement from the person who is unbiased has no dog in the fight at all, that, you know, supports your innocence is not in there to help you? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, because you go to trial, you you don't know that they are there. You, you, you're being falsely accused and arrested at the time. And then your lawyer acting on your behalf gets that packet and relies on what's in there to be able to subpoena witnesses. And so you are left um, without the defense that 
that's real. I mean, this is not even a manipulative thing where, you know, sometimes people think, oh, you know, the defense is tricking you on what someone says or doesn't say. But your situation was you literally were not given um, the full story. Not at all. And then and then, and then to be specific with, you know, with our case, we were accused of sneaking up a flight of stairs, raping someone, fleeing a building. And there was a witness that was all alone that was there who was like, no, nah, that never happened. And I saw all of them, including the, the young lady that accused us of a rape, like after, you know, the party and the events and stuff like that down in the general smoking area. But that witness was never given to us. And you got to understand that 17 years old, I don't know anything other than the high school education that I had. And all I can say is, look, it's not true. My only interaction with the law, like some people, most people in, in you know, my age was law and order. So The television yeah, show. Yeah. You know, and when Dick, Mo- Dick Wolf's theme music comes on, you never see a, a innocent person or a person where the police withheld notes or anything like that. You know, you never see that at all. So you go to trial mm-hmm. without having the defense that you really should have had, and, and you were convicted. I was convicted, uh, initially sentenced to serve 20 years in prison. And, 20 uh, years in prison. Yeah, never been arrested, you know, anything like that before. So. But because of the severity of the allegation, um, probably in some mandatory minimums, you were— you were. So it wasn't a mandatory minimum, and it's funny you should bring that up and because that goes to, to the point that I made when I first started about how, you know, if we don't if, if we don't believe this, there are—, there are clear signs that uh, race and wealth play a huge factor in our criminal justice system. So I'm given 28 years, you know, uh, total for uh, a, a rape where there wasn't even a doctor there, none of that type of stuff, right? So um, I get sold up, and I'm sold up next to a guy, and he had 18 years. He had shot two people, killed one. <laughs> so, you know, the difference was it was, it was, it was on face uh, this guy was a white guy, you know, I'm I'm a young black dude. So it was just, it was something else as I started to learn more of the cases and really get a bird's eye view of the raw, the raw reality of the criminal justice system just by talking to the people who were inside of it. And so when you were inside, at this point, obviously, the lawyers are still trying to do appeals and things, but mm-hmm. you were living in a state prison mm-hmm. with other, and yeah. you're only, at this point, I guess, 18, maybe I was turning 19. Turning 19. I was turning 19 at this time. And then I had, I was sold up, you know, with a guy who was serving two life sentences, an old white guy. Everybody in the prison called him Pops. And uh, it just so happens that that on one day there was an incident that happened in the prison, and they locked everyone down in the prison. And when they lock everyone down, you get phone calls, you get food, everything comes through the trap until they're done investigating, you know, to, to, to see if it's a, a riot breaking out or if it's just an isolated incident. And uh, during this time, I had a phone call with, with my mother. And my mother would always patch in my aunties and, you know, like four people on the phone at one time. I'm I'm still shocked to this day that they didn't hang up on us, right? That the uh, phone was a lifeline to, yeah, it was. to hope. It, it absolutely was. So as I'm explaining to they are asking me, you know, how on earth do you get 28 years in prison, never been arrested, and, and, and just the, the facts of the case and stuff? And I couldn't explain to them. I had a limited education. So after getting off the phone, my cellmate was like, look, you know, I'm confused. I've never heard you talk about your innocence or go to the law library and work on your case. I mean, you play basketball and chess. I mean, you act like you're on a four-year college campus. But, but BJ, listen, the thing is, he didn't understand, and I didn't know how to put it into words. But it was therapeutic for me not to deal with the situation, you, you know? Yeah, because it, it, 
it's so surreal. I, and again, you're really you're really young, and yeah. kind of go to the things that you had as skills beforehand. In other words, you know, when we're young, we know how to escape. Yeah. You know, whether it's music, it's video athletics, um, video games, you know, yeah. you look for escape. And so it makes sense that at your young age, you're looking for escape in the only way you know how. And the law already, you knew you were innocent, and yet the law wasn't your friend at that point. Yeah, and and so— so pops started to do an intervention. It sounds like that's what. It, that's exactly what it was. You know. You know. God delivered an angel in the most likely of characters, and so uh, he started to go through my paperwork, and that's when he located a statement from a witness named Sean Demaine. And in the statement, it was just like three sentences, and he was like, "Who is this guy? This guy's, you know, speaking about something where you you should get the full context of it." So it was that conversation, you know, that that moment right there, that led me to getting on, on top of people, to get an investigator, to go down to the school. And when they went down to the school and they talked to the guy, the guy was like, look, I gave a full statement. I don't know why you guys don't have it. And what was in that full statement? The full statement, he was like, look, I was there at the party. I seen this young lady invite these guys up. One of them stayed back. Two of them went up. And then later they all went up together. And then at the end of it, they were all down in the smoking area. So you tell me, BJ, how are we gang raping someone we never met, snuck up a flight of stairs and fleeing the building? It wasn't true. It never wow. was. And that was, your lawyer did not have that? So my lawyer was, because my mother, look, I was raised by a single parent. My mother didn't have money. We couldn't afford an attorney. So we were appointed an attorney off of a panel list of attorneys, right? Uh, Which means that it's a lawyer in private practice mm-hmm. who's not necessarily a public defender but accepts cases from the state and it's paid by the state. State, as if you're a public defender, but you're in private practice and you could get like with, I mean, at one point I would like, I was on the court appointed list. I would yeah. hope people had a good lawyer, but I knew and you know as a <laughs> lawyer that some of them, they're struggling to get clients and that's yes. why they're doing it. It's not because they have an interest in criminal law, but mm-hmm. they're just looking for a way to, to, to keep the doors open. That's exactly what it is. And there's no real vetting process when it comes to that. So I found out that my attorney didn't, he wasn't even practicing with insurance. So he didn't have insurance. Uh, malpractice insurance? He didn't have, yeah, he didn't have any malpractice insurance. He didn't, you know, he didn't have real experience in this, in this, as serious as a case as this was. You know, he didn't have the experience that he needed. And there was no vetting process to make sure. You know, the the court took, took, uh, you know, they took they took Gideon and they basically said, look, if we get a warm body, that's good enough, right? And Gideon is, you're talking about Gideon versus Rainwright, which is a U.S. Supreme Court decision that um, really makes sure that, you know, you are entitled to effective assistance of counsel. Yeah, but that, that, uh, that effective part is the most important part of that. And right? you had defective. I had defective to, to biggest D, okay? <laughs> <laughs> So with that revelation, you know, here Pops has you look at it, mm-hmm. and he's, it sounds like he's being older and wiser and saying, you know, um, grow up. I mean, You're pretty much. And, and you got to start taking care of yourself because no one else is. Yeah, but the difficult part about that is, you know, I didn't get out of, out of my situation and— you know, swallow a smart pill in prison and then be able to become an attorney. Like, no, I was on my way to college before this happened. This was the summer after I graduated high school. So, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm going through this, and I had to face the reality that I needed to get down in the trenches myself and really learn this. And it was difficult. It was really difficult, but in doing so, I um I've learned both both tales of the coin. You know? So you hit the law library in the prison. Yeah. I mean, I hit it, and I hit it ferociously. I started to become uh, a tutor for the high school uh, equivalently, equivalently diploma. Is that what they call it? HSCD or something like right. that, right? And, and the, the significance and the reason why I was doing that was, of course, I wanted to help people uh, obtain their education. But the also where you would do that is in the library. And that's where I would be closest to the books, to the research and, and stuff like that. So I came with a calculated plan. And then it, it's really turned into to this, right? You know, to watch my mother and, and, and my aunts and the suffering that they went through. When people go to prison, they aren't the only ones locked up. You know, there are family members and loved ones who are locked up just minus the bars. And in this aspect, you know, my mother and my aunts, they were. And so I told myself, if I can't muster up the energy to fight for myself, I most certainly can fight for that woman and her sisters who are supporting me. And that's what I did. So what happened with your studies and in, in, in the law library? Well, did you also, I mean, you were working on your case, but did you work on other people's? Absolutely. So what I did was this. I uh, started to draft a habeas petition. And I started to draft this habeas. A habeas petition is where you petition the uh, federal courts asking that they review what the state court is refusing to review and acknowledge, right? And, and habeas corpus just for literally means release the body. Absolutely. And it is a civil lawsuit because I guess you did not win your criminal appeals. No. Normally, you get it, you have a trial, it goes up on appeal, you mm-hmm. are losing those. And so the last chance really is the habeas corpus, which is a civil lawsuit saying I am being unjustly incarcerated. Yeah. And in your situation, you actually were in federal court with yours. Yeah, so I made it all the way up to the federal court. The the state courts were, look, our system believes more in finality than they do in justice. And I'll challenge anyone uh, who challenges that, what I just said. And so the state court was rubber stamping everything, and they never acknowledged this witness that I I found, that, that the statement was withheld and stuff like that. They just kept saying, oh, well, look. You know, your lawyer had an opportunity. He went with a strategy that was called no defense. It was nonsense. So I get to the, the federal court, and the federal court, Seventh Circuit, you know, Court of Appeals, three-judge panel, I make it all the way up there, and they unanimously agreed to overturn my conviction based on ineffectiveness, saying that there was no reasonable strategy to not go investigate and locate the one witness that had nothing to do with the case but could have undermined the entire allegations against us. So going through this process and in the federal courts and the Seventh Circuit, what area does that cover? What part of the United States? So that covers Indiana, Wisconsin, and Illinois. And you were in Wisconsin. I was in Wisconsin, born and raised in Chicago, but drove to stupidly drove to a party an hour, a uh, few minutes away from uh, Chicago and, into Wisconsin. Wow. And then um, the Seventh Circuit Court of—I mean, that is a Herculean jump. Now, yeah. did you get assistance at that point? To, to be in the Seventh Circuit? Did lawyers intervene or were you still pro bono? Right. So I what, mean, a pro se, excuse me. So what happened was this, um, and it's pro bono is a great word that you just said because uh, it was a group, the Wisconsin Innocence Project, who, uh, who who came to my rescue. I mean, they helped and they litigated uh, the, the, the petition uh, to the Seventh Circuit. And wow. Keith Finley, the director of the Innocence Project, argued my case orally in the Seventh Circuit. 
And the Innocence Project um, was really the brainchild of Barry Sheck and some other folks. So for everybody who remembers the OJ case, and Mm -hmm. he was um, one of the attorneys in that case, and he took his fame and passion as a criminal defense lawyer and probably has the most responsibility for more folks like you who are innocent by the creation of the Innocence Project, which is spread around the country. And that, yes, you just hit it right on the head. What he started uh, cannot be, you know, overlooked. And basically what he started inside of a a law school, Cardozo, many other states in in law schools started to duplicate that. And the Wisconsin uh, Innocence Project is located in the Wisconsin Law School, U of W uh, Law School. And how did you connect to the Innocence Project? How did you get to their attention? Because you're in that library working. How, yeah. How so you, what I what, did what was, little miracle led to that? Persistence. Okay. So the, what I did was this. I uh, drafted a letter, uh, and, and a letter was a general letter. And, I, and, and, you know, what I did was this. I started to notice. My letters went from saying, hey, look, I'm innocent. Get me out. To, hey, look, I'm innocent. The Supreme Court today, uh, Supreme Court case in Strickland versus Washington supports my argument. Well, my lawyer was ineffective, and not just was he ineffective. His ineffectiveness, uh, it, it messed up the outcome of my case. And so when I started to, to, to be able to uh, litter my request with legal lingo is when I started to get the best responses. And so I drafted a letter, and I would send, a, I would send 30 to 40 letters out each week. Uh, by just changing the date and the person it was going to on the letter. And what kind of people, I mean, who are you sending these letters to? I was sending it to ACLU, UCLA, Oprah, <laughs> Statman, you know what I mean? I, anybody I could find <laughs> right. who would be, and the, and the thing is this, I would send it out so much, you know, it was like this, all right, look, you're going to respond even if you tell me to stop writing you. You can't help. So I sent it out, Rainbow Push, you name it. I sent it out to a bunch of folks, and I just refused to be, um, to just, just, like sit there. I refuse to do that. And so when when I was able to to get the attention and how I was able to get the attention of the Innocence Project was so I started to help other, you know, inmates inside with sentence modifications, uh, conduct reports, you know, things so, like so that. So you were becoming what we call a jailhouse lawyer. Yeah, I mean people term it the jailhouse lawyer, but what I was doing was opening up a practice to help me get out and practice. <laughs> right. And and that's and, what happens a lot. And it and also because I think when you're in you know, you were headed to college, mm-hmm. you know, when this happened, but you were sharing um space with people who weren't going to college yeah. and could not necessarily help themselves. And so it's besides your drive to help yourself, I find it very interesting that there is a part of you that even at your darkest hour was trying to help others Yeah. through theirs. I hate bullies. I, I do. And I think that, you know, our criminal justice system, it bullies and it takes advantage of uh, people who don't have resources or knowledge. And it's, it's totally unfair. And while I must admit that the criminal justice system uh, has systematic racism inside it. If it wasn't about race, it would be about resources, right? Money. Yeah, the, the criminal. That's all of what the criminal justice system is about. It's about it's about money. And if it, if we were all green, it would take advantage of the poor green people. It would take advantage of the mentally ill green people. 
right? But the wealthy green people, they, they get appeals bonds, right? They, they don't go and get sentenced to prison terms. They get, what do they call that thing, sex rehab and all that old crazy stuff, right? Right, and it ties into another episode of um, Law Talk that we did on privatization of probation. Yeah. Um, I had a lawyer from the Southern Summer for Human Rights come, how, you know, a simple ordinance violation or a traffic ticket or a small shoplifting case ends up costing thousands of dollars and someone who's poor or even um, literally, you know, folks in Georgia, there was, you know, didn't get your trash done the right way. You get ticketed, you go to court, you miss the court or you get a fine. And if you have no money, price of being poor. poor. Yeah. And, you know, I I had a client and uh, we had to go to court and stuff like that, but I was working up up, uh, his case. And so... After I got done with the hearing, the first hearing, he was like, man, you don't even sound like that. You know, when you, you when we're on the phone and stuff like that, you sound different in court. But there's a reason why I do that. Like, right, that the reason why I took the opportunity to do this is because when you, when you talk without the legal, I'm not on here to impress anyone or talk with the smartest words. I'm trying to reach people, right? And the people who need to be reached the most, who need the help the most, they don't use all the big terms and stuff like that. They speak with uh, with slang, and they 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 may sound quote unquote country or whatever it is. So that's how I'm talking right now, and that's how I talk mainly until I'm in front of a judge and I'm saying, Your Honor, my name is Jared. <laughs> that's right, Your Honor. May it please the court. <laughs> yeah, may it please the court. <laughs> There's a lot of formality yeah. there. So you're you were found. You you're exonerated. Yeah. And where did you go to law school? So I, I graduated law school from Loyola Law School in Chicago. And, uh, you know, it was important for me to go to a school that was well-respected. All I had to do is just say Loyola Chicago, and people understand that it was no gimmies. No one gave me anything, right? I went in there, I worked my butt off. Now, I wasn't the smartest person who graduated my class, but I was able to identify the smartest people and outwork them, right? Because that was the one thing that uh, was on the even playing field. Well, because in law school you have study groups and you can yeah. a- align with who you want to help you um, learn everything you're supposed to do. And then, as you know, because you're a trial lawyer, mm-hmm. I'm a trial lawyer, there's some great lawyers who are in the top 10 percent. and yeah. But a lot of them end up at large firms. Um, not, and, and not everybody. I don't want to cast dispersion. You know, they right. worked hard for that. But your lawyer needs... Street smarts, mm-hmm. especially if you're a trial lawyer, because your jury isn't judges, it's regular folks. And you have all this technical law that they have to interpret in order to determine guilt or innocence. Yeah. And then, you know, look, I'll take, I'll take passion over, over anything, any day in a courtroom, right? Because, uh, you know, you could pay someone and they'll do the job. But if you if you have passion and you inspire someone, they'll do it without you asking. So with this passion, you actually ended up doing some work with the Innocence Project itself. I did. So, you know, of course, we won't be able to touch everything uh, in this podcast. So that means you might have to bring. I may back, have to bring right? you back yeah. in. But um, <clears throat> so this is when I got out in, in February of 2007. I immediately enrolled in junior college. Graduated at the top of my class in 2009. I enrolled in uh, undergrad at Roosevelt University, downtown Chicago. Graduated again at the top of my class, 2012. And I enrolled after uh, receiving the Chicago Bar Foundation Scholarship. I enrolled into 
Loyola 2012 in the fall. I graduated 2015. After graduating 2015, I did a dual fellowship, which was a clerkship in uh, the Seventh Circuit, the same circuit that overturned my conviction. Wait, I'm going to slow you down because you said that fast. Yeah. You're like me. I'm the same way. When I'm in court, I am like, um, Mm -hmm. um, but but it's an important point for folks to realize the irony of the same court, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, Mm -hmm. that gave you your liberty, gave you a job. Yeah. As a lawyer. Yeah. I mean, it was it was amazing because now I, I get this opportunity and I clerked for Judge Ann Claire Williams, who's now retired. But while there, I got a chance to meet, you know, the judge who, who in my opinion, you know, she was the one who was leading the charge. And that was Judge Diane Wood. I got a chance to meet her. And, and she's very well respected. And there was a reason why I wanted to do that. I didn't want to meet her and just shake her hand. I wanted to meet her and tell her what I'll repeat to the listeners now. There are a lot of times, oftentimes, some would say all the time, when judges make decisions and those decisions backfire or don't turn out well, they are lambasted. I mean, just plastered. So I wanted to shake her hand. I wanted to tell her what I was doing. So that way, if no one else told her, I wanted her to know that her leading the charge on that three panel to overturn my conviction, look at what it's doing. I am representing a a number of people I represent um, where I'm doing, I'm in the public interest field, right, where I'm representing people who sometimes can't afford to to get representation. So look at the tentacles of this judge's decisions, of these judges' decisions that have resulted in a positive impact on our community. Someone needs to throw that in their face. Someone needs to tell all judges who do have decisions that impact positively just how much they've affected and don't just... Uh, uh, throw a judge under the bus when they decide to let someone out on bond and that person mess up or they decide to give a person a break where they could have slammed them and gave them 100 years. We have to continue to humanize the community that the criminal justice system victimizes. You, you have said it exactly right. I mean, I know in my 31 years of practice, how many times, you know, after the fact I, it, it, the gratification of being able to go back to the judge and let them see what they did. I had a, a big case that was of national prominence, and I'll never forget mm-hmm. um, the judge who really listened, who granted our habeas, and then, of course, the state appealed it immediately right. and had to go to the Georgia Supreme Court. But later, um, when my client got out of prison, one of the first people we went to see was him because he saw the humanity. He saw the injustice. He could see that, but for his color, because they weren't the same race, it Mm -hmm. could be his grandson or someone he knows. And it's really important for judges to be able to see that and, and to realize. I mean, think about this, right? How long have we been running with the, with the banner of tough on crime in America? And how, how, how much safer has it gotten in our communities? It does the opposite because the criminal justice system itself needs some tinkering with. And I don't know why we can't acknowledge that this isn't the Department of Corrections that we're dealing with. We're dealing with the Department of Warehousing unless things are changed. And changes at the level of, you know, some people come to the criminal justice system because they're, you know, we, we've done a couple podcasts on mental illness. Yeah. You know, that... It basically becomes our mental hospital. That's exactly what these county jails are. And, and sure. you probably, when you were in custody, did you have fellow inmates that you looked at and you said, you know what, really, you should be 
getting mental health care? Absolutely. All the way through the initial stages of the county jail to, you know, the prison. And and it's the wasteland for it's it's the easiest thing to do, BJ, is to lock someone up and not not treat them. And and those addicted to drugs? Yeah, those addicted to drugs. You know, a number of the people look, I, I I cringe at the fact that we have medicinal marijuana stores and all that type of stuff when there are people who are still incarcerated from selling marijuana, right? That's that's a that is ridiculous. It makes no sense. None at all. It makes no sense. And, it, and don't get me wrong. I've always said this. I'm not saying that we don't need prisons and the judicial system in our society. We do. But it has turned into a business right under our nose. And, they, and what they are doing, there's a lot of propaganda being used of tough on crime and we got to do this and do that. But it's a business side of it. There are a lot of companies who make a lot of money That's right. off of this business. Besides the privatized probation, we have privatized prisons. Yeah. Um, we're seeing that now with the issues of um, the immigrants who are coming and they're putting privatized Camps at this point. You look um, phone companies, Mom. Oh, phone the co- phones. Yeah, that's companies? right. Collect calls yeah. from the prison are so expensive, ridiculous, and no one can afford it. Or if you want a snack, I think there was an article I saw recently where if you want a bag of chips, it's like six dollars, yeah. and your family's sending that money. I mean, it is. Um, it's a ridiculous thing. I mean, and this and it goes to show you the business side of it. So if you if you're making all of this money as a business, why would you want? people to re-enter successfully and not come back. You know, think think about this. Right now we know over 60%, maybe higher, of the people who are incarcerated today have had some interaction with our correction system before. So use that number with a car company. Imagine if within two to three years, every car that came off the production line, 50 or 60 or 70% of them came back because something was wrong with it. We would have a national debate on Congress about shutting that car company down or that car company fixing itself. But somehow, we don't do the same thing with our criminal justice system when the anecdotal evidence is there to support that something is horribly wrong. You have, I couldn't say it any better. And I think it's a perfect place for us to end as we've been enjoying our tea. And because uh, with every episode with Law Talk with BJ, we are yeah. sipping on a cup of tea. And I try to pick a tea that's appropriate for my guest. And this is hot cinnamon tea. And All right, now. the reason for that was this. Cinnamon has been historically part of our culture, is mentioned in the scripture frequently. Mm-hmm. And anointing with cinnamon was oil back to the Hebrews, mm-hmm. my people, or, or one part of my family. And it was a symbol of strength and courage and from being delivered to freedom. Mm. That is Jared Adams' story. And so I thought when I was going to have you here that we needed to be sipping on tea and that hopefully your story can help deliver others to freedom, for others to have the strength and courage to do the very things that um, you've been talking about, which is taking a look at the justice system not prejudging it, stop the prison pipeline, and let's look at each other with humanity and work with folks and make it a better place. Absolutely. So thank you for joining me for your tea, Jared, oh, and uh, I'll clank glasses with you. Absolutely. I'll put my pinky finger up, There too. you go. <laughs> Very, the, I, I can't do quite a, a little British accent, a little yeah. proper cup of tea with my friend Jared. Oh, yes. Everyone, thank you for listening. It's been Law Talk with DJ. 
This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire. <laughs>